Welcome to another exciting episode of the Wild Honey Collective, a podcast for cultural worker bees, where we map the intersections of food, land, and health, beginning with our bodies, just like the honeybees. We hold up creatures as teachers and strive to learn from the wisdom of ecosystems by listening and being in relationship with our ecologies of belonging. Season one is more than halfway through, and we have had so many wonderful elements moving in our collective space. Friday Night Wild Cooking Collective, where we share the arts of cooking wild foods and also share personal goals for holding up our whole self-health. And also Shelf Discovery, Breakfast, and Book Club, where we're currently reading The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. We have two months left of season one, and then we'll take a hiatus to prepare for another new cycle of pollinating ideas and alchemizing those ideas into coordinated, artful action. But sadly, for the second part of season one, we're going to be meeting less in person, definitely not for the next few weeks because COVID is going crazy, so we want to keep everybody safe and If you have been attending those events, then you'll want to watch out for announcements on social media about when they'll be starting again. My guest today is Gabe Huck, a a contemplative voice for peace that does not flinch away from, but directly challenges the unconscionable violence of what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called the triple-pronged sickness of racism, materialism, and militarism in our own country and around the world. Together with our very first guest on this podcast, Teresa Kubasak, they founded the Iraqi Student Project, which facilitated college preparation for young Iraqi people displaced in Damascus by the sanctions and wars of U.S. aggression of over 10 years in the late 90s and 2000s. He is also co-author with Teresa of the memoir, Never Can I Write of Damascus, When Syria Became Our Home, which seeks to capture the essence of a Syria that challenges the American public's image of a nation defined by war, instead depicting a well-loved home that is rich in life. Our conversation traces the beginning of Gabe's lifelong commitment to racial justice, peace activism, and the arts to his work with Teresa to offer access to fully funded education for the inheritors of U.S. militarism as a form of reparation for the harm inflicted by our own government. Good morning, Gabe. Thank you so much for being here today. Good morning. Uh, We are sitting in your home recording this interview, and we are surrounded by art and books and a big wide window and this room is just full of textures and full of the voices of people who clearly influence your intellectual and cultural heritage and lineage and to me that speaks to how you surround yourself intentionally with voices that ground you in some way in who you are and what you believe. So I'd love to start by asking you if there were four pillars that 
represented the foundation of who you are and what you value, who would those four pillars be? Who are your influences? Okay. I think there's a lot more than four, and it's hard to... uh, to come up with them, but uh, the uh, I'm trying to think of it from a point of view of uh, people maybe long gone that I still uh, count as so important and and uh, open things up or close things down in in a good way. Um, the uh, the one I come back to, I guess, all the time is somebody, of course, that I never met in person. Uh, and uh, James Baldwin, uh, who died in the 1980s, uh, and his writing that I find myself going back to again and again. I first uh, encountered him, I guess, at uh, probably uh, end of high school or near near there somewhere when he published uh, in the New Yorker uh, what, w- what would become uh, what became The Fire Next Time. It wasn't called that one. It was published in an issue of the New Yorker. And the, the, my, I had the habit then of uh, with a uh, going to the library in the in the school where I was uh, at night and uh, reading a bit usually and usually the the periodicals. So the New Yorker, uh, which I think was much better then than it is right now, but it carried the entire text uh, of. Uh, uh, of a, a new text from from James Baldwin, and I sat there basically most of the night till I had finished it, and have gone back to it. It's on the shelves there somewhere, uh, again and again. Over the, the the his ability to use the language, his ability to to know uh, himself and to the and the world around him, and to tell it. Uh, was something that uh, I had felt I'd never really encountered quite that way before, and it stayed with me. So I put him as somebody that uh, changed, opened up uh, my my own life, my own you know how to think about things and what things to think about and why. Uh, so. He's he he would be one of those four on there. The the um, uh, but the the there's there's all kinds of other things. About a few years after that, I was in living uh, in Washington D.C. Maybe I was uh, twenty two or twenty three years old, and uh, and I had. Uh, read the work of a, a theologian, uh, Rosemary Ruther, who I found was teaching at Howard University. 
and uh, because um, the universities in in Washington kind of had the trade-off thing, if you you know you're enrolled here, but you can come take a class there, uh, and that's when I uh, experienced her as a teacher, but also over the years as uh, her, she and her family as as a friend, and uh, the the the. The challenge she gave herself in her, the things she wrote about and the things she talked about in classes and so on, was was very much, uh, um, kind of taking a track that needed to be taken, you know, in a, in a especially in a Catholic, uh, condi- setting. Uh, to uh, to explore as a serious theologian, which she was, and for people like me as, as a person interested in what she's thinking about, so we became friends. And later, later she taught at Northwestern when uh, uh, we were living in Chicago. So it was a relationship that continued. Uh, a third would have to be probably many people involved in this, but the, the leadership of uh, Kathy Kelly in Chicago with uh, putting together the, the kind of, the first time in the mid-90s that Americans were reminded, hey, you know, we didn't just uh, destroy a large part of Iraq in 1991 as a kind of a excuse when they had in, uh, invaded and, and took over Kuwait, yeah. So so she called attention to that. She found a way to, to go and see what, what was happening in Iraq after, at that point, about six years of serious U.S. sanctions. By the time we became kind of... Uh, part of her, uh, her project there in Chicago of uh, traveling to Iraq, which was against the rules and the laws for Americans, but a good number of people did it in trips with her to see what sanctions, hard sanctions, over six, seven, eight years at that time, actually when, when I first went there was uh, with Teresa. It was uh, 1999, and uh, so they'd been on for eight full years at that point. Harsh sanctions, and because the U.S. put it through the U.N., th- there were very few countries willing to do anything about it, and Iraqis were children, especially, were dying. And the point of our travel was uh, to to see uh, and exchange with the Iraqi people. Uh, so, and that, uh, that, that insight from, from Kathy Kelly was, you know, became uh, friends for, you know, years after that. We went four times to Iraq before the U.S. invasion in 2003. Uh, but that insight into what had to be done, uh, and she's shown that in, in other U.S. blunders also. 
Um, and there's uh, a fourth person in this group. Um, yeah, I mean, because my work uh, over 25 years in Chicago was publishing in, the, in, in a, uh, a publishing house. But the thing, the important thing was a person or a couple of people really, who I had worked with before uh, when I was in my 20s somewhere. Uh, uh, Bob Havda, who had been a conscientious objector in World War II and then be, uh, became a Catholic, became a, a priest and a, and a writer and a teacher uh, who had huge influence uh, as a friend. Uh, in in the in the years he he uh, died in the early 1990s, uh, but it, it 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 was a person who who connected things. He didn't just leave pieces here and there. He connected what was happening in this in this country, uh, what was happening in this church and what we were bound to, to try to do about it. Mm. So those, those would be before, but I think uh, there's all kinds of people yeah. that had great influence uh, over, over the years. Uh, some, uh, some that I knew in person and, and many that, that I just paid attention to what they were, were saying or writing. Uh, or creating uh, yeah. in the arts. And that was a great part of, of being a publisher was that you could really look for those people and, and work with them. Yes. So you see some of, it, <laughs> some of it with us now. Yes, and that shows in this room where we're sitting. Yeah. There are so many books around us yeah. that are all really really important works the, yeah the books uh, and and uh, you know and the art but, you know if you look up here just this these days right now I look at that piece by Leonard Baskin and uh, and t talking about a, a murder, murders in, in, in the South, in our time, in our lifetime, and so on, that, that, you know, again, kind of got people to rise up much as we had to get, a, how hard it is to get Americans to pay attention to something. Yeah. But Leonard was uh, given to that. Well, I will take a photo of this poster that you're referring to that's entitled Courage from the Past and Strength for the Future. Yeah. And I'll post it as the photo for the cover of this episode it's so that good. people can okay. see it. Yeah, and there, there are, it's keeping around us the things like, uh, like that, that, that are, you know, that meet every expectation of, of quality that people should, should have, but they're done by people who really care about what what we're doing and so on yeah and yeah. you've you've just touched on something that i just want to speak to as one of the core philosophies of 
this Wild Honey Collective, which is Tony Kata Bambara's quote that the role of the artist is to make revolution irresistible. Yeah. And that is the artistic, cultural labor of trying to articulate where we are coming from, what has happened, and where we want to go. Yeah. And uh, the, the importance of all artists of many kinds uh, in paying attention to that. Yeah. And, and, and uh, somehow that, those writers, those uh, uh, creators of, of different arts and so on, to be able to pay attention to them, to, to spend time with the work that, that they have done and continue to do, men, women, it's, it's, uh, it's got to be part of things. And it has in most many cultures over, uh, I think, over history. But, you know, with us, it's here and at this time, in this place, it's pretty hard. Yeah. And pretty expensive. <laughs> yes. So. Costly, for sure. So this, where our conversation has gone is making me think of the work, the long thread of work that you have done around reparations. And part of that work has been education and choosing to express your commitment to reparations by working with Iraqi refugees, young people who wanted to go to school. And can you talk about the Iraqi Student Project itself and how it ties in to your framework for reparations? Yeah, <clears throat> that's really, you know, it's interesting that that, that story of that uh, medical student uh, we had in southern Iraq in 2000, I guess that was the visit in 2003, just months before the U.S. Uh, you know, clobbered the whole country and, and, uh, and, and, and be continued what continues now in terms of the inability of important people through centuries uh, to to have a chance again to live again and so on. Anyway, it was we, our little group had had visited uh, a hospital there and met some uh, interns and some uh, doctors and patients, and we were outside uh, getting ready to move on to the next place. This was in Basra in southern Iraq, and somebody tapped me on the shoulder shoulder and uh, and he was a young um, intern whom we had met inside and in English he's because the people his doctors study have to study English said can you get me a book it's like Phew. can I get you a book I mean 
that's where what we had done as, as Americans pushing those sanctions at that point over 12, 13 years. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't counting the dead who were mostly children from malnutrition over those years because they could not get good food in in the in a place that had had once been uh, a both of uh, food and and ideas and a, a history saying can you get me a book and uh, that I think that kind of generated some things and then when the when the U.S. invasion came a couple of months later of Iraq that that uh, put the U.S. there for years uh, and uh, continues what what was what was done to to the people continues to be a a huge burden on the country. It's never been able to pull itself back together again. But that was when. Um, Teresa and I decided, what can we do? Uh, I was jobless at that time and uh, and not really looking for anything to do. But but uh, uh, and she was teaching. But we said, well, you know, what does this country have to offer that's worthwhile? And it was education was something to you know to think about. And and we. Uh, were very ambitious in thinking. Well, then we need to go and live close there and and work with some uh, Iraqi students. Which uh, the nobody knows for sure the numbers, but something like a million Iraqis had had after the U.S. invasion and all the things that came with it, and afterwards had fled, as Syrians have done since then. So, but we went to Syria and uh, lived there for seven years, and the first two years were trying to learn some of the language uh, of Arabic, and but mostly, what can we do? And uh, gradually, it became clear what we can do. There, there are refugees from Iraq here who. Uh, can go. Syria opens their schools to them, but only up to the college level. At that level, they would have to to pay, and they're really poor because, it, you know, Syria can only, could only go so far in trying to make people at home there. And so we began to look for and work with. Uh, young Iraqis who had finished high school recently or a few years ago and who wanted to continue their education. Our hope and thought in doing that was that they'll be able to go back to Iraq and help in the, the recovery. But the recovery is, is really yet to happen, so it was not an uh, intention that was ever really fulfilled. Many stayed in the uh, in the U.S. after study, but but we had to find colleges, universities in the U.S. who would give uh, lift the expensive cost of American education 
and then find people in that area, in that town, that neighborhood, who would be supportive of them uh, and friends. And uh, that worked in different ways. And over the next five years there, we'd been in Iraq and Syria two years at that point, we stayed five more years. And each year had a, a small group of uh, Iraqi students, men and women, um, all of whom were just intense on getting back to university studies and in different areas. So each year it would be from the most we ever had was like 20, I think 19 or 20 going to US schools. We spent our time and our friends time in the US trying to find schools that would say yes and uh, and spent our days and with the help of many uh, English speakers who were in Damascus for different reasons, uh, their own studies in some cases, but would volunteer to help teach our students uh, the not simply to teach English. They had to know English pretty well in order to start, but to get to a level where you could go into a first-year classroom in a university and 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 be ready to hear it and and speak it. Yeah. And these kids could do that. Um, you know, we worked through a whole year, six days a week in our apartment uh, with amazing, and most of them, their families were there too because they had fled their homes in, in Iraq. It had gotten so difficult there. So over those five years, around 70 Iraqis came to schools in the U.S. And um, uh, now, you know, not all finished, but most did, by far most did uh, undergraduate work anyhow. And some went on. Just this year, two uh, PhDs in science uh, uh, completed their, their studies and, and, and went to work. Mm. Um, that, that, that's like a little outline of a very interesting seven years of, of uh, time. We came to love Damascus and its people and its streets and its history. Uh, and when we left, it was, ju it was about one year into the rebellion that had begun uh, in Iraq against the, uh, the leadership that would turn into seven years because Syria became a battleground for Saudi Arabia and other U.S., uh, 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 Iran, yeah. to move in and, and create what is devastation of a important history and country and people. And, and uh, there's no sign of it being able to recover uh, until now. Um, what did, you know, it, it did not involve the U.S. in a way that uh, the invasion of Iraq did, but the U.S 
put on and keeps on the harsh sanctions that are, again, are, are doing to the Syrians what we had done to the Iraqis in the 90s. So, uh, on and on. Mm-hmm. And so tell us about the Damascus that we don't know from our own storytelling in the U.S. media. We often hear about Syria as the battleground for war and the field in which destruction takes place. But these are some of the most ancient cultures that have continued on in modern major civilizations. And so I wonder if you can talk about the life of Syria that is often overshadowed by the war that we've helped create. The, you know, that, that's, I mean, we had no intention of writing uh, a book when we, when we, in 2012, we, we came home. I mean, the, the, the situation in Syria had made it difficult for any outsiders to, to continue to be legally in Syria. And, and, and it was sad and hard, but we left. And also because the whole situation with young Iraqis and so on had changed because of what was happening in, in Syria then. And um, the, 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 I guess the respect for the people and, and the arts and so on that we'd seen there led us to, to writing the, the, the book. We, we, all through the years there, we had uh, tried to, we built a list of people to write to and send letters, long letters, uh, a few times a year. Uh, so we had kind of like memory fixed and then someone you know, was proposing that we write a book about it, and I'm glad that we that we did. It it uh, uh, it it tries to open up to Americans uh, an Iraq, a Syria that they don't that they don't know at at all, but should know a history too. But it's it it's not it's done that by way of us telling our story of being there for those seven years. Yeah. Uh, so with with uh, you know the, the the kind of hoping that people see in it a country that n- nothing has prepared them for in the United States uh, normal life of a, of an American, you know, and that is probably true of many other countries. Syria is is. Is unique in in ways like I mean the 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 image people have is uh, you know you know it's it's fanatic it's this it's that they've had their problems but they they know how to live a good simple uh, thoughtful artistic life day by day. Uh, in contrast to to what we've done to each other, to the black population of this country and other peoples, uh, 
it, it it's far ahead and much that you know that we could learn. And if they have a ruler right now and have had for since uh, uh, nineteen. Well, he's only been there since 2000, but his father before him, who is not so much given to the people and doing it. The people go on, you know. They, they, they do. Is, is, are there bad things done? Sure there are bad things done. It's just like here, but not on the scale that we do it. Yeah. So. And here, your book is sitting on this table and... Its title is inspired by the Syrian poet that I am turning the page to, Nisar Kabani. Yeah? yeah. Would you like to read it? Yeah, it's here in Arabic and in in English, um, and we we. We begin to hear this poem at some point, but after we've been there quite a while, really, and uh, and about this poet who uh, was not no longer living, but he'd been a recent, you know, the people, adults had had poetry means something to Syrians that that Americans you wouldn't even recognize, I think, in some ways. Interesting thing about this poem is. When we started to look for how to get permission to have it translated and used in English, and nobody could find it in a book. Mm. People knew it by heart, and I still haven't found out how how it circulated. This is not the whole poem, but in a in a good English translation here. Never can I write of Damascus without my hands becoming a trellis for her jasmine. Nor can my mouth utter that name without savoring the juices of her apricot, pomegranate, mulberry, and quince. Nor can I remember her without a thousand doves landing on the wall of my memories, and a thousand doves take flight. And in the back of the book, we put another short line from, from this poem. Damascus. It's not a picture from paradise, it is paradise. And it's not a copy of the poem, it is the poem. (laughs) I thought it was amazing. And um, uh, so we've never found how to get the right to use it. Because nobody, no Syrian needed to have it on a piece of paper. They knew the Arabic by heart, and it's a much longer poem than that. But he was a much-loved uh, poet through the middle of the 20th century in, in Syria. That is amazing. Thank you for reading it. Yeah. So really, yeah. I'm glad we have this recorded. <laughs> so good. <laughs> good. So... I want to ask you about our own community now. Harrisonburg, Virginia, is a community that becomes the home of thousands of refugees. I think it's important for members of a community... Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, I actually already asked this question. I, you know, I lost 
the reparations question. I hope you can come back to it. But Sure, we can come back to it. So, let me give me one moment. Let's come back to it right now. So I think it's important for us as Americans, we who are listening, who are Americans at least, to understand the destruction that has taken place on the global scale of cultures that are not only sovereign and in their own right, have a right to govern their own futures, whether that is conflict or peace. But also, we have been responsible for the destruction of treasured, ancient lineages of arts and ideas and place and agriculture and culture itself. And so, based on your experience, what do you think the U.S. government and we as the citizens who theoretically mandate our government's actions must do to atone for these acts of unprovoked war? Mm-hmm. That's a very broad saying of, of how we act toward other countries, not a question about our what whites do to blacks in this country. I think they come from the same root. They do. But, yeah. Yeah. I'm curious what your answer is. Um, But the... The the difference is, you know, in... uh, um, that, That it's a generation after generation of white people that have been on uh, that a majority have been unwilling to even understand what it is to be black in this country and and uh, and to survive to 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 you know get, have any uh, any any sense any understanding or any uh, concern for 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 what it is and that's what's maybe happen, beginning to happen now in in terms of the wider thing that all you know also uh for for all our ability to uh you know turn on you know hundreds of radio stations and television stations and uh, books and films and everything else we don't know a lot about the world and what 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 we're doing to it we, I even wonder what percent of U.S. people know uh, what our military control of so much of the world is and costs and uh, why. Although the why is probably varies in terms of uh, what it means to, to different people. It it uh, it is. It's a moment, to, you know, though when. Some young people, young people especially, but old people like Bernie Sanders and others too, are raising, you know, important questions. Um, 
and, and in which uh, black people are, are able to tell us you know, how absolutely uh, dismissive the, the main white population is to their, to their condition. And, but we live in a time when it is, you know, the, to me, what, what is different and special is that, you know, the black pe people, black authors have, be, have begun to write it in, in ways that are put before us, and here they are, you know. Will we read it? Will, will we try to understand what we didn't know, didn't think about, didn't care about, of, of that history? Uh, and not, I'm, you know, the centuries of it, and it, it being totally unsolved yet today. And that's, you know, that's one uh, way of understanding why some form of reparations has to be made. It, it, they're, they're, the, the damage done to the black population has to has to be recompensed, has to be uh, paid. You know, you say, well, we didn't do it. Oh, yes, we did. <laughs> you know, uh, we stood by and, you know, and, and paid no attention. And that, uh, churches, you know, corporate, whatever, they're, they're, that has got to turn somehow. You know, and and I don't separate it from from the other, you know, from from what other things that that are uh, coming at us, and that we don't really know what you know what to do about. That's environmental, uh, but it's also the foolish. Uh, year after year, the foolish waste of our uh, riches in order to dominate the world. And, and that has only grown under, uh, in, these, in these past years, mm -hmm. uh, the defense budget, the 700 billion annual, uh, nobody even knows how much or, 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 or what all it does, including people in the Pentagon. It, it, it is, you know, with all that should be done to keep the, the world together, to keep it existing, and, and to solve this racial difference, not just blacks, but Native Americans, uh, uh, is to a people who, who, who want to, or who allow our leaders to support uh, an economy of militarism mm -hmm. uh, rather than than change this you know you know find out how the world looks at us that's what we we need to try to get into mm -hmm. and to witness each other to look back at the world and see the beauty of what is sacred instead yeah. of yeah. the opportunity of what there is to extract yeah. and exploit. It's a whole area of, 
you know, but people are talking. People are, you know, we just have to learn how to listen and not, uh, not be sucked in to 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 the uh, economic and and uh, uh, racist sides of things. Yeah. Thank you for that word on a topic that I could talk to you about for the next years and <laughs> we still wouldn't if we're lucky have enough to say but we will continue this conversation throughout this podcast throughout this season so good thank you for getting us started you're welcome thank you all so much for listening to this episode and if you want to read more about Gabe and Teresa's work with the Iraqi Student Project, I highly, highly recommend checking out their book, Never Can I Write of Damascus, from Masana'in Regional Library, or looking it up online if you are not local. You can also sign up to receive emails from the Harrisonburg Reparations Group and learn about volunteer opportunities and other ways to support the Shenandoah Valley Black Heritage Project. Please also consider leaving a positive review on whatever platform you are listening to this podcast on. It really helps get the podcast out to more people. So for all you wild honeys out there, keep creating.